Well, if you're new with us this morning, I want to say welcome. I do hope that you're comfortable and that you enjoy your time with us. We're entering a part of the worship service where we like to take a a section of scripture and study it a little more deeply uh, to hear from it and to think about what it might mean for us in our lives. And lately we've been tracing the life of David, who was one of Israel's great kings. Uh, He was God's chosen man during a, a specific and very critical time in Israel's life. And this morning, the text that we come to, we're, we're finding David at the very beginning of becoming a household name in Israel. Last week, we studied uh, how David slew Goliath and rescued his people. It was a, it was a grand and, uh, and really amazing act that he accomplished on behalf of God's people. And he begins to win what I can only call universal approval uh, amongst the hearts of the people of Israel. That he is gaining admiration. He's gaining esteem. Uh, they are looking at him with affection. Uh, even members of Saul, the current king, Saul's court, is uh, coming to love David and even members of Saul's family. And so I included it, this kind of initial text in the bulletin for for your benefit, in chapter 18, the beginning of chapter 18, that's right, in the, that happens immediately in the aftermath of David's victory over Goliath, we see a unique friendship uh, begin to form. It says that the soul of Saul's son, Jonathan, was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And in succeeding chapters, we're going to see that all of this popularity... An affection for David actually has an undoing effect on Saul. That uh, he, he already knows, Samuel has already told him, the kingdom has been torn from him. It's just a matter of time before somebody replaces him on the throne. And he's watching as the hearts of his own people begin to turn to David. And in Saul's eyes, David quickly moves from be- being, a, being a servant in Saul's court to being a threat, so much so that he tried to kill David numerous times between Goliath and the passage we're going to look at this morning, several times. And David then has to run for his life. And that's where we're picking up this morning at the beginning of chapter 20. David is on the run from Saul, and he's going to his friend, Saul's own son, Jonathan. Let's look together. This is 1 Samuel 20. I'll read verses 1 through 17. Hear the word of the Lord. Then David fled from Naoth in Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, Far from it. You shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at a table with the king. But let me go, that I may hide myself in the field till the 
third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says, good, it will be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, far be it from you, if I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, come, let us go out into the field. So they both went out into the field. And Jonathan said to David, the Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also. If I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Oh, Holy Father, I pray that you would be with us this morning, that you would help us as your covenant people to hear from this text, to lean in and really listen and consider what it means, what you intend for us. And I pray that you would help me, your servant, to love these friends well, to be a good friend to them as you are a good friend to us, O Christ. Holy Spirit, please be at work among us, proclaiming to us the truth that we need to hear from you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So not long ago, I came across uh, an article entitled, A Cost-Benefit Analysis of Being Jewish. And it was written by a Jewish man named Charlie Weiss. And what he was doing was he was writing on the enormous investments, uh, specifically in terms of money and time, but mostly it was about money, uh, that he and other uh, Jews, uh, Jewish men and women, have made in cultivating the Jewish identity in their children. And it was a really interesting article. um, But the thing that grabbed my attention was the picture that was at the top of the article. I think it must have been in a bar mitzvah. I mean, it was a It was obviously a big party. Everybody was dressed up. There was a huge table that was full, lavish, lavish with specific, uh, just very full with specifically Jewish food that would have been served at a bar mitzvah. And there were a bunch of teenagers standing around it uh, all together, dressed to the nines. The boys were in suits and ties and the girls were in dresses. They seemed to be enjoying each other. And the caption said, don't think of it as a catering bill. Think of it as an investment in Jewish identity. The article was asking, is the juice worth the squeeze? And I thought at first, I found it really off-putting. 
to take something as significant as cultivating a religious identity in our children and, uh, and reduce it down to thinking about it in purely economic terms like costs and benefits. Until I realized, really, that we think that way about some of the most significant things in our lives. I mean, this is, this is one of the ways we think about our work, right? I've got a friend who's thinking about moving from one job to another. He's thinking about absorbing the cost of a pay cut in order to enjoy the benefit of working less hours in a less stressful environment and spending more time with his family. He's doing a cost-benefit analysis. This is one of the ways we think about where we want to live. If it's a house or an apartment or whatever, we're thinking about where it's located, its proximity to certain things, uh, our work or favorite restaurants or who our neighbors might be or what the school districts look like and what the house costs to us. We're doing a cost-benefit analysis, aren't we? We even do this with our friendships. Because we all know that some friendships cost more than others, right? Some friendships give back more than others. Some friendships are more expensive than others. The other day I received a a phone call from an old friend. Nobody from this church, I promise. And, And this was somebody I have a long history with. And we have a long history of long catching up conversations. And I was asking myself the question, can I absorb the cost of the time that this phone call is going to take in order to enjoy the benefit of catching up with an old friend? I was doing a cost-benefit analysis. Is the juice worth the squeeze is the question that I was asking. And I would just submit to you that we ask that question far more than we think we do. And in this passage, we see a unique kind of friendship that's presented to us between Jonathan and David. And I'm calling it a covenant friendship, not just because the text tells us that they made a covenant with each other, but because it is laced with the language of covenant love. And in the Bible, a covenant is a solemn, unbreakable union that's formed between two parties. And that's really what we have here in this passage. And as we see, it's got certain costs and it's got certain benefits. And so what I want to do is work through it talking about both. The costs that, the, that, that uh, they're willing to absorb for the sake of each other and the benefits that they enjoy because of the relationship that they have. And I'll save some application for the end, okay? So first, the costs. The first cost I see is that this relationship defies uh, all of the societal norms in ways that, that they or we would understand what friendship should look like. It's pretty common for us that, um, that we think that David and Jonathan were actually peers of a similar age. But based on what we know about when David was born and how long Saul had been in power at that time and uh, that the fighting age of somebody in Israel, of a man in Israel, had to be at least 20 years old, we actually think that Jonathan was about 27 to 28 years older than David. Which, which would mean that David, John, Jonathan would be old enough to be David's father. That Jonathan and actually David's father might have more in natural common with each other than David and Jonathan does. This is kind of an odd-looking friendship on the face of it, right? And add to that that Jonathan is royalty. He's born into a royal home. Uh, with the, the, all of the life and the trappings that come with that. And David grew up as a peasant shepherd. 
And so I only, I only say that this is a cost because that, uh, forging a friendship like this across so many things that they don't have in common requires hard work, doesn't it? I mean, they, they don't have shared education or training. Even probably their syntax or the, the words that they use are probably wildly different. And uh, it's simply hard for people to, to, that live very different lives to understand each other. That requires hard work, doesn't it? And we know this from our own experience that it's easier to forge friendships that are limited to, to people that might have a common background or a common worldview, common understanding of our place in the world, common understanding. Those friendships are far easier. And so there's a cost behind a friendship like this one that we see in this passage. Another cost is, is simply the cost of surrender that you see in this passage. That right now, everyone would have known that Jonathan is the heir apparent to the throne. But what we see in the progression from that passage I gave you in chapter 18 to chapter 20 is that Jonathan is coming to the realization that that is actually not going to be what happens. If you trace, if you trace this, look in uh, chapter, the chapter 18 section in, uh, in verse 4. It says that Jonathan stripped himself on the robe that was on him, and he gave it to David, and his armor, and even his sword, and his bow, and his belt. Now, that, like, why is that in there? That's actually a big deal. If you remember last week, you remember when Saul tried to give his armor and his weapons to David, and David couldn't take them? And now you have Jonathan giving his clothing and his armor and his weapons to David, and David can. So, so at the very least, uh, David is able to receive something from Jonathan that he can't receive from Saul. At the very least, in that section, you see Jonathan seeking to elevate David into some kind of royal status in that passage. But here in chapter 20, what you see is that he's explicitly realizing that once, what once belonged to him now belongs to David. He says, may the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. May the Lord bless you as he was blessing my father Saul when he was ruling the kingdom. But Jonathan is coming to a realization that his, his right by birth to ascend to the throne, something that would be very precious to him, no longer belongs to him. And that he's beginning to, to, to actually embrace what God is doing through David and through the people of Israel. He's actually, instead of resisting what God is up to, which would have been any of our inclinations, I think. He's willing to surrender in the face of what God is doing. And finally, I think we see that maintaining this friendship bears the cost of, cost of risk. Risk. In order to maintain this friendship, he really has to take sides against his own father. If Saul's seeking David's life and Jonathan aligns with David, then he's taking sides against his own father. And in verse 6, verse 16, it says, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. Now that's profound. Because there's no doubt in Jonathan's mind that David's enemies would include his own father. And so he's taking on a great risk in order to do this. Later on in the chapter, you'll see this if you keep reading, that, uh, that, 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 he actually, that risk actually comes to fruition in his life. And Saul insults him verbally using very caustic language. And, and, and Saul actually tries to kill Jonathan in, much, in a much similar way to, to, attempt to, to the way he attempted to kill David. 
And so when Jonathan honors this covenantal friendship he has with David, he put himself at great risk. And I think it would be easy to ask the question, as you look at the costs of a covenant friendship like this, I think it would be easy to ask the question if it's worth it, right? Risk my life, surrender the things that are most precious to me, Even building friendships with people we have nothing in common with can feel forbidding to us, right? Those risks, I'm sorry, the cost sounds extraordinary, doesn't it? But what are the benefits? The first one I think we see is what I just want to call comprehensive security. Comprehensive security in each other's presence. Because it is just wild to me. That David, when David is on the run from Saul, he, he actually goes to find safety and security in the company of Saul's son, Jonathan. That blows my mind. And the way that he launches into it in verse 1 leads me to believe that David is, is operating off the assumption that Jonathan really knows what his Saul is up to. But, he, in his, in his, but yet in his most desperate moments... He turned to Jonathan because he knew he would be secure there. Now, let me ask you the question. Just think back to the last time that you were truly afraid of something. The last time when life felt threatening. Who did you call? Well, you probably called somebody that you trusted, right? You probably called somebody that you could share your fears with. That you were willing to allow enter into your life when you felt most in danger. That, that, That person is somebody that you trust and you feel secure with. And that's one of the benefits I think David is enjoying here in Jonathan's presence is that when when the king of Israel is hunting him, he finds security and peace in Jonathan's presence because he trusts him. So you see comprehensive security. I think you also see a sharing of a burden here, a shared burden. Jonathan hears David's story, and at first he doesn't believe him, right? He says, far from it, this can't happen to you. David doesn't, or Jonathan doesn't really know what Saul is up to at first. And David insists, he doubles down, and he says, no, your dad didn't tell you because he knows you and I are close. And I don't know if Jonathan believes him or not. But what does he say? He says, whatever you say, I will do for you. And I just can't help but wonder what that must have felt like for David. To know that he wasn't alone. To feel Jonathan's shoulder slide under the weight of the burden that David was carrying. That he knew that this burden was no longer his, but it was theirs. It was a shared burden. And then you also see what I want to call a transcendent commitment. Because in this world, you need to understand there's no such thing as a peaceful transfer of power. When one king goes and a new king from a new family ascends to the throne, it always involves bloodshed. And the playbook is understood. It's simple. One of the first things the new king has to do is eliminate everything that might threaten his rule. And that would begin with the family of the former king. 
What Jonathan understands is that as soon as David rises to the throne, his own life is in danger. And, and this, is, this was the case simply because you had to, any, any vestige of the former royal family would be a place where opponents of the new king would rally around for rebellion. And so that helps make sense of what Jonathan was asking in verses 14 and 15. He said, if I am still alive when you take the throne, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever, meaning his family, his descendants. And for most kings, this would be an unreasonable request. He's asking David for a commitment that transcends sensibility. It transcends custom. And it potentially even puts the welfare of his future rule at risk in the kingdom. That's the way that that request would have been understood. But what you see in this passage and in the unfolding of the life of David is that David is no ordinary king. And Jonathan is no ordinary friend. And there is coming a story that we'll preach on later in the spring where David honors this transcendent commitment that he makes. It's really amazing. Those are a few costs. Those are a few benefits. There's so much more there uh, that we could look at. It's just fascinating to look at. But I got to tell you, I've had a love-hate relationship with this sermon all week long. And I'll tell you why. It's because I don't want to give you the impression, I really don't want to give you the impression that something like this can be boiled down into like uh, economic analyses of costs and benefits. And I don't want to give you the impression that Jonathan and David, as they were making these decisions and making these commitments to each other, like they were doing math on the side, you know, trying to work out if this was in their best interest or not. Okay? But they're not impulsive either. Like these are not impulsive commitments they're making. I think what you see here is just this is what it looks like when two people love each other in a covenant friendship like what is given to us here. And it's really incredibly beautiful. But what are we to do with it? It's a nice story. What are we to do with it? Well, I'll tell you, one of the things I think that we see here is that it is speaking to us of our need for friendships. It really is. Because have you noticed how very human this is? Like when you look at the story, can you, do you, I mean, like you can get a sense of the fear that David is experiencing. And you can get a sense of the commitment of Jonathan toward his friend. And they're discussing these fears and potential outcomes and their commitment with each other and giving each other words they really need to hear from each other. Isn't this a picture of something that we long for with people? Like, isn't this a picture of the friendships that we all need? It wasn't long ago that the Surgeon General declared loneliness an epidemic in America. And so if you're sitting here and you don't feel lonely, then you're probably sitting near somebody who does. And I'll tell you, just as a pastor, it's something that surfaces often in conversations with people, inside and outside this church. And it comes in all forms and sizes. I've heard loneliness from people that work hard in a very competitive work environment, and they feel lonely there. I've heard of loneliness from people that have just a ton of friends, but no, no relationships of real depth. I've heard of loneliness from people that, I've heard that, that people that feel lonely in their own marriages. And I share that with you only because 
it's so easy to feel alone in our loneliness, like we're the only ones. And I just want you to hear that if that's you, you're not. You're not alone in your loneliness. And I also want you to hear this, that you crave a good thing. That God created you for relationships of depth and meaning. He desires that for you. It's one of the ways that we bear God's image as, as a relational God. It's one of the ways that we come alive in the world. And so confessing your loneliness doesn't make you needy. It doesn't put you on the wrong side of a cost-benefit equation. It might just be that you're being honest about a fundamental human need that you have. And to all of us, I just tell you that one of the greatest ways we can serve somebody is by just simply entering into their lives with commitment and meaning. That That would be a great service to the people around you. And just as this passage speaks to us, I think, of what we need, I think it also tells us of something that we have. Something that we have. Because where do you think Jonathan and David learned to love like this? Look, look at the words in this passage that are used to describe their friendship. You see that they were knit together. It uses the word covenant. The word for steadfast love is used twice in this passage. These are words that the Bible uses overwhelmingly to describe the love of God given to his people. It descri- Those words are of- almost most often used to describe God's covenant commitment for his people because he's the one who cast his steadfast love on his people. And look, David's, David's clear on that. If you read David's Psalms, you're going to see him use this love, uh, this loving description of God over and over and over again. Psalm 101, I will sing of your steadfast love, O Lord. To you I will sing praise. God is the one who bound himself to his people through the forming of a covenant. Tony said it earlier. He is the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God that when he forged a covenant with his people, he created an unbreakable union between him and them. And when Jesus died for us and resurrected from the grave, he forged a new covenant between us and God that will never be breached and that will never be forgotten. And so here's what I'm getting at with you is that the relationship that we see here is but a picture of the relationship you already have with Jesus Christ, with God through faith in Jesus Christ, because it's Jesus who bears the cost of our relationship with him. And he's the one who surrendered his place next to his father. And he's the one who put himself in harm's way and gave his life and who makes a transcendent commitment to us that doesn't make any sense when we try to do the math on that. He doesn't just share our burden, he takes our burden. And his death on the cross where we gain a future under his protection forever. He bears all the cost. And we enjoy all the benefits. He does all the squeezing and we get to drink the juice. And every time we enjoy this covenant relationship with each other, when we give ourselves to this friendship, this good friendship work with each other, where we risk for each other, and we provide places of security in our relationship with each other, we're giving each other a brief reminder, even fallen as it is, 
of the amazing relationship with Jesus that you have right now, simply through faith in him. And not only that, we're giving each other a foretaste of the relationship that we will enjoy with each other one day in heaven, where you will have peace with the man in the temple and you will have peace with your neighbor. You know, one of the hardest things to believe is that God loves you forever and ever. Amen. That's one of the hardest things for us to be convinced of. And you know what makes it a little bit easier? Is the committed love of a friend who knows you, who knows all the reasons that you're unlovable and yet loves you anyway. You're making the love of God that much more uh, understandable when you live that out for your friend. There was an incredible article that came out. It was a week or two ago. A friend sent it to me. It was one of those that I was just so struck by that I sent it to the staff in the session. And I don't know if anybody read it. Maybe they did. I don't know. Nobody told me they did. (laughs) Nobody circled back with me, you know. Uh, But it's a hard read. It's very sad at times. I'm going to commend it to you, but only if you feel up to it, okay? It's written by a guy named Jonathan Charks. You might have heard his name. He writes for The Ringer. He normally covers the NBA, but he's a Christian writer, and he wrote this uh, just amazing, heart-wrenching article titled, Does My Son Know You? And it's because he, he was just diagnosed with an incurable form of cancer. And uh, he has sarcomas all over his body, and uh, the doctors have told him they can't cure him, they can treat his symptoms, but this, this cancer is going to get him, and he, they don't know how long. And one of the saddest parts of this story is that he has a two-year-old son named Jackson. And, uh, and he doesn't, he, his father also died when he was very young. And now he's wondering if his son, how much his son is going to know of him uh, when he goes to be with Jesus. And he could have written about anything and I would have read it. But you know what he wrote about in this article? He wrote about the importance of a small community of friends at his church. And you know what he called it? He called it an investment that he was making in his family's future. That he's hoping the investment he makes in these friendships is going to continue to pay dividends that his family will enjoy after he is gone. He put it this way. He said, I want him to wonder why his dad's friends always come over and shoot hoops with him. And he said, why they always invite him to their houses and why there are so many of them at his games. I hope he gets sick of them, is what he said. Now, it's an amazing article, but the thing that struck me the most was that this man who has no idea when he'll be with Jesus is finding some of his greatest comfort for himself and his family in the covenant community of Jesus. How they are living this covenant friendship with each other is incredibly beautiful and good and is a picture of the relationship that they enjoy together with Jesus as well. And so that's our call Jesus once said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So that's our call, but it's also our opportunity to live out the covenant friendship that we have with Jesus and covenant friendship with each other as, and, and so bearing witness to the world of all that Jesus has done for us. Let me pray. Oh, covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, the one who has committed himself to us, 
the one who has put himself in harm's way and risked everything for us, the one who has made commitments to us, I pray, Lord Jesus, you are the one who called your disciples his friends. I pray that we will be encouraged and strengthened by that truth, but give us the strength and the courage to move toward one another in deep love because of the ways that you have loved us. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.